0: Welcome to episode number one of As You Were, a podcast about Alkaline Trio, where every week we talk about an Alkaline Trio song. This week is My Friend Peter. All right. My friend Peter. My name is Tim Crisp. This is my friend David Anthony. Peter. The hosts as you were a podcast about Alkaline Trio. Inaugural episode number 1. Going coming Even in. No, it's number 2.
1: Eh, well, I mean, the first one was more housekeeping, right? Yeah. You know, we we cuz one of the things when I we talked about doing this, talking to other fans of the Alkaline Trio. Uh-huh. The Alkaline Trio, the uh, Alkaline Trio. They're like, "Well, I want to know uh what you guys think of the records. Are you going to talk about the records every episode?" And I'm like, "No, it's going to be redundant." You know, and uh, if if you want to know what we think of the band as a whole, if you need some history, if you need whatever, go back to episode one. But this is the first real episode where we're we're talking about a song,
0: and we're breaking it down. And we started with a bang, mm-hmm. starting from our initial playlist, our first playlist of the Asian Man Records output of the Alkaline Trio. We threw the thing on shuffle. What we got was.
1: Gold, baby. Yeah, yeah. We really. uh I mean, granted, there's songs on there I love. I I don't think there's much bad there, but there's definitely ones I think people would be like, I don't really. I'm not as familiar with with that one. We kind of hit right on a fan favorite here, which is nice.
0: Absolutely. I think my my friend Peter, I would say pretty unanimously, stands out as as an alkaline trio track. Yes. Most especially from that period, but really on the whole. You throw that song on, people are going to be stoked about it. People know the words. It's a staple. It's a definite staple.
1: It's one of those songs where I think it's remained in their set list, if you will, over the course of that time. I think some songs have, uh, even from those really popular early records, have, have worked their way out. I feel like My Friend Peter is one of those that's, that's become a standard and, and crosses the eras
0: yeah, and it certainly does, and I think, and we'll probably get into this a little bit more, but it really it marks a point in Matt's writing where he catches on with an ability to write a really, really solid, anthemic two and a half minute mm-hmm. song. Mm-hmm.
1: well, i I think I think that's really what's crucial about this song and a lot of what you see kind of on the self-titled collection is because, you know, as we discussed in episode one, Matt was previously a drummer in bands. He was not the front person. He was not the singer. He was arguably not the songwriter, Uh huh. you know? And part of the charm of those early records is the fact that he doesn't really know what the fuck he's doing. Yeah, definitely. But this is the one where I think if you were going to point to the first song where Matt Skiba literally develops the template that he has followed to this day, it's My Friend Peter.
0: yeah yep structure and it's got a real real solid intro great chorus and i think it presents an attitude that is very very much his Mm -hmm. and it's it's a slightly marked difference i think from the first couple lps where it is dark but it's also kind of it's it's transmittable. It's something that you can attach to and sing along to an anthem if you will.
1: Yes, and it's it hits on the thing that I think he did a lot in this early period and a lot of what resonated with me which is like it's dark um but it's kind of self-deprecating. Yeah. And it doesn't take itself too seriously. Uh, I think that type of stuff, which I think would become kind of a trope, and, and I think people would leverage against the band, would would really come later into their career when when it got a little more self serious, and you couldn't tell if the humor was intentional, right, or if you were like laughing at it because it's like laughing at a bad movie,
0: right? Because it's almost like this song, it's you know the way he talks about. Drinking and drugs and being heartbroken it's not as desperate as it was earlier. Yeah, it's almost like he's taking it and he's and he's presenting this image of Of himself and his activity that is You know it is an image Mm -hmm, mm
1: -hmm. Well, and I think it's also someone who is young, you know, this song was recorded in 1999 though. It didn't uh, come out then Um but it was, you know, I think a really interesting thing because so much of God Damn It is uh, really kind of focused on, you know, uh, drinking away the pain. Da, da, da. But, you know, he was 20-ish. You yeah. Know, he was still pretty young. And I think he hadn't really uh, developed a way to do anything other than just kind of say exactly what he was feeling in right. exact situations where, like, right. the song is called My Friend Peter. Uh-huh. It's about how his friend Peter might help him. That is a very like on the nose, like there is no metaphor going on. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But it does pack a really good chorus. Mm It does have a lot to latch onto. Let's get into a little bit of history with it. My friend Peter, the fifth track on the band's 2000 self-titled compilation put out by Asian man records. The song was originally from a compilation called magnetic curses, a Chicago punk rock compilation. I'm keeping that colon in there when I'm presenting it because as a podcast with a colon in the title, it's important that it's all part of the presentation. Well,
1: and also that uh, we will use almost that exact same phrase and that exact same label later on when we hit on another track. So for now, it's a nice little uh, bit of foreshadowing you've done.
0: That compilation was released by Thick Records, which is notable for releasing Blue Meanies records in the 90s. Thick also put out the Blue Meanies Alkaline Trio Split, which is where the trio cover of Bye Bye Love by the Cars can be found originally. This comp was put together by Bill Spunk of the Blue Meanies and features tracks from the honor system, Lawrence Arms, Peg Boy, who mm-hmm. feels a little out of place
1: here. They're definitely the elder statesmen on that comp. Uh, the Arrivals and a
0: whole bunch of bands... You will never hear of otherwise mm-hmm. unless you're a nerd like David who probably has a favorite Mary Tyler
1: Morphine song. I mean, not offhand, but I'm familiar with their works. I mean, they're no Sweep the Like Johnny, but... Some of the best
0: Matt Skiba songs, to me, are the ones that he craps out in 15 minutes. <sighs>
1: That's what this feels like, a hundred percent. It feels like they committed to being on a comp, and he just needed to get something done.
0: Or it feels like he just picked up his guitar, and this thing just naturally came mm-hmm. out, and it came out so goddamn good that he was like, "Well,
1: that's that." That's that. It's also interesting to me too because you know he's someone who, when you hear him play guitar, it feels very distinct, and yeah. I think that's part of. We talked a little bit about some of the other stuff he's done, namely Blink-182, and I think that's my biggest issue with with him in that band, is that you don't really feel him. Yes. You know, he's he's by no means a guitar player, but his guitar playing, even as much as it relies on that kind of octave chord progression thing, it is very expressive, and the intro to this song is very much a perfect encapsulation of that. Well,
0: it's that that E octave, Mm -hmm. that he just, that's his home key. He knows exactly how to make his guitar sound the way he wants it to sound in there. And just like starting that with just that high E octave is Mm. like, it's perfect. And it's so, it's so, it's got such a life to it. And it's insane that really they're like, that's his guitar playing.
1: Well, and I think it's interesting because, you know, at that time in, in the late 90s, early 2000s, there were a lot of bands who were leaning on that type of thing. I think early Get Up Kids has a lot of that going on. Yeah. I think, um, you know, this is after Face to Face's kind of heyday. They were using that in part that was showing up in some of the SoCal punk rock records. Yeah, at the time. sure. You get
0: like Jawbreaker, like guitar solos are really just octaves.
1: Yeah. And, and like, I think that's fine. But I think the, I think the interesting thing about it, and I'll, I'll talk about this a lot, especially in those early things, is like the way Matt forms chords and the way he strums them is very percussive. Yes. You know? It's not a straight up and down four four thing. It's uh-huh. got a na 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 You know, he's doing a little more of a percussive swing to it, and and I think you really see that in this song. And I think that's what makes some of them pop is that instead of just you know hammering on the chord progression on the right. three notes like a lot of punk bands were doing, uh-huh. it it forced the song to have a little bit of like a, a herky jerky energy.
0: To yeah, it. definitely. And I think that that's punctuated too. With, I mean, use the phrase hammer on, but like the technical mm. hammer on that's happening there from the E flat to the E. I'm like, mm-hmm. which I mean, that gives it a lot more life to it than just playing that chord progression three times in a row. It's good enough, but that hammer on brings some life to it. And it's also the second and the third. On those mm-hmm. the hammer-on is like slightly different it's just yep, a slightly yep. different
1: rhythm that you can latch on to well it's it's that and the way it builds it's it's that kind of hammer-on progression then yeah. he kind of goes to the more standard thing and he kind of uh-huh. builds it up and he's really good at, at, at shifting kind of like the tone of it in the second part of that riff yes and then leaves room and and I I would argue that this technique is incredibly corny now but he used it very effectively. Sure, but that like open A, that open to A B. thing mm-hmm. to a huge pick slide. Yeah, which is like such a space filler maneuver. But it feels if it's not there in that little beginning of this song, right, to allow uh, Dan and then Glenn the room to do a little fill, right. and Glenn to do that really like drum roll that kind of sounds like it's about to kind of fall off the rails. Uh huh. It's less effective, you know. Well, and I think that
0: Dan. Has a really expressive voice with his bass too, mm. and just that tiny little walk up that he does in the transition from the intro into the verse. It's such a it's such a perfect little Dan moment yes. on his playing, and it really does like. There's not much life to that transition. No, out of the out of the intro into the verse. And it is a little, it is a little hokey. And Dan steps up and does something really, really nice. And and it it always works really well with his tone too. Yeah. Both of their tones at this juncture are so locked in.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, because that's the thing is, I think it's it's famously been said that you know because Matt was a drummer, he didn't really know a lot about tone or gear. Uh uh-huh. And in those early recordings, like if you listen to which we'll touch on, some point the Sundials record like that is oh, the yeah. chunkiest, weirdest thing because he's running from what I recall, it was either like a Marshall head through an orange cab or vice versa. And just like, really like not knowing how to dial in his tone, playing it through, um, you know, a Les Paul. And it just gives it this very like chunky borderline, like, hardcore breakdown kind of vibe and
0: then god damn it is so shrill yeah so
1: weird well and, and one of the famous parts of that which we can touch on later is that you know again that was recorded so quickly uh-huh. you know there wasn't much that was one take two take and you know I'll, I'll save one of the more interesting facts about the guitar tone on that record for when we get to a, a Goddamnit it song But here is where they figured it out. Yeah, And, you know, Dan had always been a great bass player. Mm -hmm. You could argue in slapstick, maybe a little busy. Yeah, Tuesday, he's really more refined, and I think you see that more that style of Dan's playing later on in Alkaline Trio. But right now, you know, he understands they're a three-piece, and much like people... It said about jawbreaker it felt like everyone in the band thought they were the only one in the band and offline uh-huh. trio very much has that in this era yeah
0: totally and it's like it is it's the the very end of of glenn in the band but glenn's chops are so interesting and so out there but you also have what i think is a very locked in band at this yeah. point. Everything yeah. is, is kind of there and there's um there's remnants of of the, the chunkiness in, in all parts uh that leads up to, to this point in the band. But like here we are and this is kind of like, you know, the beginning of of the next phase of yeah. Alkaline Trio. Um but one of the things that I love about this track getting into the lyrics mm-hmm. is First of all, I love the rhyme pattern on it so much. Mm-hmm. I don't care who you've been sleeping with these days. It's more than fair. Like, that yeah. is just such an interesting little bit, and it's not a not a traditional little rhyme scheme, and he also doesn't do it again. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of the the initial hook on it all, is the way that he well, lays that out.
1: Well, there's that. There, it's the very choppiness of, of that. But it's the way he uh, holds out the note when he says care. Yeah. That really, I think, is is the interesting thing is because what it says is like, you know, Matt would get into a little bit like raspier and or screamier territory here and there. Uh But he could hold the note. Yeah. He could hold it out and make it really melodic. And and that just in the I don't care, Uh those three words, he's got a hook in there. And he's got a sing-along part in three words. Yes. Which is a very very big thing that he was doing early on in the band's career
0: hitting yeah in 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 places where you're not it's not expected for you to have a hook in the verse necessarily but that's that's very nice and the song kind of follows a pattern of like you know hitting one and then like giving your information after the line yeah hitting one and giving the information after the line um in this song like it reminds me a lot of the Ted Leo song, Me and Mia, mm-hmm. which that song is not about Ted and Mia. It's about someone else. Well, it's about bulimia. Yeah. Well, it's about somebody who's struggling yes. with bulimia, but, you know, the the reference to me and Mia that mm-hmm. takes the title, that's not what the song's actually about. Exactly. Just as this song is kind of about. Him and his friend Peter, more but than very <laughs> yeah. But it's just thrown in, you know. Yeah.
1: You know, it's just it's it's just kind of tossed in there. Uh uh-huh. And it's that that's what's interesting is because we were talking about the ex- expressiveness of the chords, the expressiveness of the playing, and the emotion behind it. Yeah. And that's really what I think Alkaline Trio at their best does, where it's not so much what he's saying, but it's the fact that you feel it and you also want to join in on that. And, yeah. And, and very quickly this song does it. I think lyrically, you know. I think the rhyme scheme is really interesting. And again, I think it speaks to him not really knowing what he's doing. And I think Uh there's a charm to that. I often think when people learn what they're doing and learn you're supposed to do, oh, it's going to be like A, A, B, A, you know, I think you end up, sure, you're technically writing a better song in terms of theory, but how many of those songs are there like that? Right. You can find a better one or a worse one anywhere. Um,
0: You take away some of the emotion that goes into you take away
1: emotion and i think you often are losing personality and anything that feels distinct Uh um but to that point like lyrically i think you know i know every word to this song yeah i know how to sing it i know how it goes i had not sat down and looked at the lyrics in a long time yeah and they're fucking goofy they're so goofy but that's what it needs to be like, yeah
0: and i mean i think that that's like one of the unspoken charms of all of it is yeah. that he sets the intention like i don't care he clearly
1: does yeah that's why he's writing the song and and, and the rest of the song seemingly counteracts that uh-huh it's very petty <laughs> but in a way that's like it, it, it's the reason it you know reflects is that so many people are like especially now to use a more modern
0: parlance. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. You
1: know, there's so many times you're like, I don't care what they're doing, but like you're creeping on, on someone's Facebook. All of it. You know, you're doing that shit, Uh but outwardly you're getting drunk and telling people you don't
0: care. Yeah, exactly. And it's, and it's, I think it's a, it's a funny lyric that I've never really fully understood that, you know, my friend Peter lives so fucking far away. You're not as far as you, even though you live right down my fucking street. Mm -hmm. Like, (laughs) it's there's such a goofiness to that
1: it's crazy it's 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 one of those lines where when you really think about it divorced from the song like this was probably scrawled on a cop cocktail napkin Uh you know at 2 a.m at club foot or something yeah you know this was not the most like i don't think this was a really like belabored thought right you know and I don't know. I think there's there's a charm to that in any young person writing a song.
0: Yeah, cuz I yeah, and I think that that's like that's a Skiba thing where mm-hmm. he he drops these these weird phrases that like you're just not supposed to put into Song, you're yeah. supposed to figure out something like a better, better. way to say, say it, that.
1: yeah. And I think you see that a lot in other songs. You know, the, there's so many songs, especially in the early years, that have that. Uh huh. And one of the biggest ones in this one to me is like, uh, when he's talking about I'll drink 20, like, yeah, drink 23 more, you know. Da, da, da. And it's just like, because the thing is, like, it's obviously a bit of that, like, you know, gilded like, lover, like, just dude being a dick kind of thing yeah but it's all about hating himself at the core right, right? you know this whole thing is it's just it's, its less demonizing himself. the other character as much as it is like he, he he's drinking not to spite this person he's trying to wipe the stupid smile off his face yeah you know, he's, totally. he's, he's he's the one who realizes and i think that's that's a trend you see you know from sundials to here which is him very much being the person who you know he doesn't want to be Right. You know, Sundials is, you know, so much a song about that. Sorry About That is so much a song about that. Maybe I'll Catch Fire as a whole is right. largely about yeah. that. He's
0: he's at fault and he's dealing with it. And mm. he's the one that's walking around with it. And he's the one that that only slept for two hours and now has to ride his bike around Chicago all the time and feels like shit because of it. Yeah. It's his self deprecation I think is really, really magnetic mm-hmm. and you know the the amount of f bombs in this song yeah. and just like the the you know the, wipe this stupid smile off my fucking face is just like he's so tired and worn out and just like man this sucks you know that's well, <laughs> all it is, is
1: that, like everything sucks man well and it's just yeah it, it's the everything sucks mentality and it's also like petty yeah and juvenile it's like i'm tired of sleeping with myself i'm tired all these drinks and drugs no longer help like you know i think those are very petty things but the line that has always stuck out to me is the one that follows which is like I'm tired of lying about not thinking of you. Yeah. You know, because that's what—that's really where the song hits on what it's about. It's it's the idea of, like, someone trying to, you know, living well is the best revenge, living your best life, yada, yada, yada. In spite of someone never actually gets you that far. Uh Uh-huh. And it's just futile, and you're just being self-destructive, and you're being shitty to yourself and everyone else around it. That's what the song's about, and that's when he finally hits it. And I think that is the ultimate takeaway, is that everything else is basically building to that one point. That feeling of just like, yeah. And I don't even know if he intended that, but that's what the effect is. Right, yeah. And I I don't,
0: there's very little conclusive thought in this, but Mm -hmm. it's just like, it's laid out in such a way that you kind of step back and you're like, Ah, oh, you're yeah. just you're just dumb and you're drunk very dumb. and sad, and I you're love you're probably his, miserable to be around. Yeah, and I love you know this character of my friend Peter, who mm. is it's never never expounded upon what he does or, or who, who he, he is, yeah, yeah. anything like that. He just tells him what to do. He's
1: just around. Yeah, he's just he's the sage who shows up. Right, you know. And has the advice. He's he's the person who's going to be there to to, to set him straight in these fleeting moments. And I think it, it's it's a song that you know, if we're to extrapolate out, it's really telling because the, the Peter character lives far away. He probably doesn't see him often, but when he shows up, uh-huh. he, he sets he sets old Matt on the right uh, path. And it's clear Matt wants that, but he doesn't know what to do with it, and he's incapable of doing it on his own.
0: I think there's also a really good chance too that uh, Manskeba just drank. 12 beers with his friend Peter and then came home and crapped out this song about it and was like, Hey, this is kind of funny. Totally. (laughs) Totally. Totally.
1: You know, I, uh, there's no reason it can't be both. Um, but you know, that's why I think this song is a fan favorite. I think that's why so many people love it. Right. Because it's easy to sing along with and I'd be hard pressed to find someone who hasn't shared in those feelings.
0: I think it's something that I shared in very early on you know from the moment i heard it when i was 14 or 15 mm-hmm. and then you know in college getting drunk with my friends and in normal we would change it from 23 beers to 29 because you drink 30 racks because mm-hmm. that's how you do it yeah
1: so for me it's interesting because i heard the song when i was like 10 years old um and really i wasn't drinking beer uh-huh <laughs> I was straight edge most of my life, yeah, and still really don't drink now. I didn't start drinking; I was my mid twenties. So for me, it was like so many of the bands I loved. Like I love this band dearly, but so many of the songs were about being a hot fucking mess, uh huh, and like codependency issues, yeah. Um, and I knew every word, and I Uh sang along as if I was doing it. But but by the time I started drinking, got to that point, I saw this more as a cautionary tale for like what not to do, right? How not uh, to behave. Um, and I don't know if I landed that, but like, you know, it's definitely like feels it's a song that's fun when you're 18, 19 or in college and getting drunk. Yeah, yeah. yeah, It's a lot less flattering when you're 25. Right. And need to be an adult.
0: Yeah. You can't you can't do that. You have to go. You have to go to work. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Um. Yeah. I, I remember hearing it, you know, when I was 15 or 16 and and, and I dabbled and I always felt like the the presentation of at least drinking a lot of beer was you know very romantic to me mm-hmm. from Matskipa I was certainly not like deterred by it I was more falling in love with you know the like yeah this is how much I don't give a shit
1: sure sure and I think for me I was more falling in love with like the the feeling of like longing and just trying to find escape and release and something and like obviously i think that's why a lot of people drink 23 or 29 yeah beers in a given evening but you know uh i, I could resonate with that even if i hadn't had that lived in experience which i think ultimately is would good quote-unquote art right. can achieve <laughs>
0: you taught me a lot Uh about about drinking old style
1: yeah (laughs) yeah you taught me a lot about uh drinking old style and you know probably vomiting on the floor of uh the exit or something
0: well this is also like i think when we talk about self-titled um and talk about it in terms of you know the way people see it as an lp even though it's Mm -hmm. technically not like my friend peter has the fifth track in there you know following the i line my face off mm-hmm. ep it's that one two three four five is just unbelievable and and my friend peter like really just kind of put an exclamation point on you know what is mm-hmm. a
1: killer first side of a record well and i also think the uh the i lied my face off ep as a whole is pretty dark yeah especially from dan which we'll get into later but like yeah you know especially with the way that plays out with the last note uh-huh have i lied by face off dangling forever yeah and i remember hearing that the first time and like i always loved that and thought it was so cool right how they hit the last note and ring it out and it's a good 30 40 seconds of decay and then they just hit it again it's so good which is like the biggest joke in the world to me i think it's like so brilliant and dumb <laughs> and then you know that happens, and then you hear the snare. Dun, uh, That's
0: That snare hit to start that track is just so perfect. It's, it's,
1: a, it's a beautiful tactic that I think is underutilized.
0: Yeah, definitely. And especially, too, thinking about it in terms of comp track. Mm-hmm. Thinking about, like, you know, you are on a CD with 24 other bands.
1: How do you stand out?
0: Right. And that song just
1: pops. That's the thing is I think... As much as like you know, I can kind of like jokingly shit talk them as being kind of stupid uh-huh. about you know and doing things that feel unintentional or goofy. I think they were really smart, and I think yeah. they were smart enough to like chase it or, or chase a dumb idea or do something that made them unique that no one else would really feel comfortable doing. And I think that is a perfect encapsulation of that, where like they were a band at the time, saying yes to a lot of comps. How do you make yourself stand out? start a song in probably the way no one else on that comp starting a song right you know plenty of them are starting with a guitar riff or everyone playing together or whatever start with a just like bump and then you're in and i
0: I think you know we'll get into other comp tracks of theirs they're a very good compilation band
1: i mean i think one of the best i think there are certain bands that um, you know their compilation, tra- like the reason self-titled feels like an album to people is because they were so good at that. Uh-huh. The reason I think remains remains in the canon yeah. is for that same reason. I think there are bands that were always that way. I think Braid was a much better comp band than oh, they were an LP 100%. band, and I think they would, uh, you know, admit that just as freely. Yeah, you know, and at that time that was just it feels very weird to talk about now, but the 90s through mid 2000s compilations were really important and really prevalent yeah and if you could stand out on a comp you could stand out anywhere and uh you know i think that's the thing that like these are a lot of one-off songs that i don't know if i could place a song like my friend peter easily into one of their albums uh-huh so it needed to exist in that format it's
0: almost it's almost like a single Mm-hmm. um and it's just, it's just a, a different delivery method that's, you know, very of the time. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, splits would kind of take over pretty soon thereafter, mm-hmm. especially going into like, you know, the late 2000s. I remember Mikey Erg coming on Better Yet and talking about how the Ergs always viewed... Splits as like that's the place where you put your best tracks because yep. yep. you're being exposed to all of these a new audience, right? And so you know all these all these people that are buying this uh this comp to hear a peg boy track that they don't have are probably falling in love with alkaline tree totally
1: and i think the interesting thing is we needed to discuss also like the the proliferation of comp tracks as a cheap affordable medium because cds at the time were pretty expensive uh-huh you know they were they were going up and and mail order was such a thing that like comps were the things like even if you went to a best buy they may not carry a, every asian man title but they probably had mail orders fun yep. you know if you yep. went to a borders you wouldn't see like epitaph releases aside from the comps the same with the warp tour comps like right. these things tour are,
0: comps, you have like punkorama all uh, of them hopelessly devoted to you all of that
1: and, shit. and talking about you know in a, in a world where the internet was there but not necessarily totally dominant exactly you know that was how a, a regional band aside from touring really spread their music out talking yeah. to when i talked to var from no idea about this is like yeah because you could sell a five song or, or a five dollar cd with 40 songs on it no one was doing that yeah you yeah. know like you were you were used to going to the mall and paying 18 dollars for a cd and now you're getting 40 different bands for five why wouldn't you buy it right you know and i remember pouring over compilations back then yeah. just really digging into him and trying to figure out everything about a band and if you had a bad comp track i was not going to check you out yeah
0: 100 percent. and it, yeah it's um i guess that was something that like i hadn't thought about but especially like late 90s early 2000s there was there was so many like important comps and mm-hmm. it was like it was almost like you, you know this is where you you heard new things, but this is also where like, you had to show up. Mm-hmm. And...
1: You had to do a little bit of the work to it, Yeah. you know, and uh, stick with it. And, yeah, I think this song stands out in both those formats, both on self-titled, and, and I think it stands on its own really well. It's one of those songs when, you know, I've seen them play. Uh, I, they've recently moved it more into the encore slot for Song of an Encore, which I think is a great move. I've yeah. seen it as an opener, but it's one of those songs, no matter when they play that in the set, It hits they go into that first riff everybody's into it you know it's just a lightning rod and i think when you hit that and you can in just a few seconds pull everybody in and you know make them want to sing like you're on to something yeah i think that this one is on to that
0: and when you're firing too it's really clear Mm -hmm. and i think that the you know the lack of of an instrumental or a bridge or anything like that. It, it hits that second chorus. That's it. Yep, you're out. And and it, it, and it ends on it ends on that line too, which I like a lot too. There's not there's not an instrumental after that, even not even like a re- repetition of of the intro. It's just maybe my friend Peter will tell me what to do. That's it. That yep. song stands with. I you. also
1: didn't realize until listening to it recently how short it actually is. That's yeah. just over two minutes. I always for some reason. I don't know. It doesn't feel long, but I felt like it was a slightly longer song for some reason. I
0: feel like music around that time was just longer. Yeah, you know, I think I feel like there's there's been a shift over the past ten years or so of you know it's gone from like a three minute standard to like a 215 standard well
1: i i think in certain worlds i I would argue that now i see it's shifting back to like the four or five minute radio song especially with the proliferation of you know rap becoming a dominant form you listen to a future record like yeah there's well i'm talking about
0: joyce manor sure sure but i mean i think
1: you know them in particular like yeah Uh they, they but they were such a that was such a crazy thing when you heard a pop band writing songs that were a minute and 15 seconds. Yeah. That was not normal. And that was a narrative around them for a long time. Uh huh. But I do think, you know, when you're thinking about like the nineties landscape of what was getting played on the radio, these were five minute smashing pumpkin songs. Right. You know, with it was fucking temple of the dog and shit. Like we're not, there was no room <laughs> for a two minute. Yeah. 13 second thing. Yeah. Like, yeah. That for was sure. not really what was happening there. And really, I think, you know, a lot of stuff that is captured on self-titled falls, some of it falls into that range. But really, this is, it is one of the shorter songs in their canon.
0: Yeah, I think that, I think that that's it.
1: Well, Tim, <laughs> my friend Tim, uh, what, how, how many skulls out of five do you give my friend Peter? I think that this is a straight up five out of five. I... You know, there was part of me that I was thinking about, I've, I've lived with this song so long, yeah. you know, That I, I think sometimes now I overlook it a little bit. Yeah. Uh, I rate it a little lower in my brain. But listening to it, it's pretty undeniable. It's five skills out of five.
0: I think that, too, you know, I had, I had an experience listening to it a few times in a row getting ready for this. Mm. And I think that it kind of, over the years dropped down a few pegs it did for me and i think that that might have something to do with the fact that it kind of was repeated to lesser and lesser value
1: i mean there's a part of it there's a part in a later era song that Uh, you know when they try to go into the verse i feel apes this almost directly yeah and i think that's part of why it fell in my brain and i think part of it too is because it was so immediate yeah. I find that sometimes, you know, it's you can't eat cotton candy for dinner. It's right. not going to sustain you. And yeah. I, I feel like that's what the song is. It's the most like, you know, and gooey just like sugar rush of a song. Uh-huh. But looking at it without those other things around it, it's a really good song.
0: Yeah, and I think like coming back to it too, it was just like, man, this song is fucking awesome and any complaint that I ever had about it is just completely null and void. Mm-hmm. Like the the dumbness of it. Yes.
1: I it doesn't matter.
0: I got it. You know, I yeah. got it right away too, and it felt like, you know, I don't. Maybe it's maybe it's stretching to say that it's purposeful. The, the the dumbness of it. Sure. But feeling like I had seen it, then it felt like a flaw. Like, oh, you know what? That's that sounds well, kind of dumb.
1: Well, I think that's the thing: is it, the perspective on something like this when you're looking at it critically. Uh uh-huh. far as a fan it goes one of two ways right right so when you look at it critically the fact that you know we're talking about it 18 years down the road from when most people heard it it's easy to see that it's dumb yeah it's easy to see that it's simple it's easy to see the corny parts of it however put yourself back in the year 2000 yeah and i don't think anyone would have said it
0: no no,
1: so those are the dual pursuits that are, we're going to run into a lot doing this. Yeah, definitely. But uh, the thing I, the way I'm approaching every rating on this, uh-huh. is what feels true to me now and and also true to me then. Yeah, you know, there are songs that I definitely didn't like when I first heard them, nearly twenty years ago. But now I would say are some of my fra- favorites, um, and I'll be honest uh, honest about that when we talk about them. But this one, I loved then. And hearing it now I love I may have in the interim Dismissed it But I was a fool Yeah <laughs> Yeah And uh,
0: Yeah Wholehearted agreement On all of that So Next week We got A different playlist Different song Different song
1: But For now It's you and me baby For now we'll leave you with uh, Our friend Peter I And maybe care. he'll tell you what to do you been on me out of my hands And in my mouth With such a pleasant taste I need a beer To wash it all away Without a trace And then I'll drink 23 more To wipe this stupid smile Off my fucking face I'm tired Of sleeping with myself I'm tired